For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is the annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. It's time to light the scary lights. Turn up the volume and go ahead and grab another handful of trick-or-treat candy. It's an all-new collection of seasonal stories designed to thrill and chill. Don't be afraid. This is only the 12th annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. First up, let's travel to the quiet, peaceful community of Vale to learn the lesson that even zombies can have good hearts. Andrew Brown traveled with a group of curiously costumed monsters of all ages. They only wanted to share the true spirit of Halloween in the name of a worthy cause. So let's cross the road. No one get hit by a car, please. We're now hitting a neighborhood here in Esmond Station to do some Halloween scaroling. Good evening, my lord. My name is Wesley Lee. <laughs> my name is Rebecca Ferris. I'm with Bale Youth Voices. And we're out here doing some Halloween caroling. And we'd like to know if you want to hear a wonderful song. Sure. Let me, let me my family. Awesome. Okay. Mama, come here. So here's a list of Christmas songs. I want you to pick one that you like. Uh, Silent Night. Silent Night. That's a wonderful song. Silent Night. What was that? My name is Wesley Lee. I'm the uh, head instructor at Vail Taekwondo Academy, and we were doing a kickathon for kids kicking cancer. Scaroling is Halloween caroling. We took the, some great Christmas classics and rewrote them for the Halloween season. All's not calm, all's not right. Werewolves baying at the moon. Kids Kicking Cancer is an association that goes to children's hospitals and teaches martial arts to kids going through treatments there. Our school has a goal of raising over $2,000 for the charity itself. Zombies moaning in the dark, munching, chewing brains. My name is Rebecca Frerichs and I'm the director of Vail Youth Voices. When I first heard of the idea at first, I was like, this is kind of strange. What, what is he talking about? The more he explained it, I'm like, this sounds really fun. And I think the kids would really have a great opportunity getting to know each other and bonding in a group. Because when you sing in choir, choir is about how well you sing together as a group and a team. On the ninth day of care, my true love sent to me. Ninth even sensing, eight sunny morning. Wesley the karate master over there, he uh, came up with the parodies and I was reading through them and they look pretty funny. I like deck the halls with bowels from holly. <laughs> Four metal claws, three dead friends, two scary eyes, and a flaming jack-o'-lantern. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Lee and Bruno, and I'm a Victorian zombie. I'm wearing a purple and black dress with a bunch of makeup on, um, and my hair in a sloppy bun. Even though I get nightmares very quickly, I'm just not scared of Halloween for some reason, even though a lot of people are. Because uh, I get a lot of candy, and then they get a sugar rush. My name is Kaida Lee. My dad created these scale songs. He turned Christmas songs into Halloween songs. 
All right, on three with uh, Jason Voorhees. Hi, my name's Steve Morrow. The group of uh, Scarolers came around doing uh, Halloween versions of Christmas tunes. Um, I saw them posted on Facebook that they were coming, so I'm glad they stopped by tonight. Our daughter loves the Halloween costume, or Halloween decorations. You know, it's an interesting neighborhood. I like it out here. A lot of families, and they get into holiday spirit for Halloween and every other one holiday. So it's it's nice out here. Choppity chop chop choppity chop chop. Look at Jason go. Choppity chop chop choppity chop chop. Into the depths below. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Whether or not you believe in beings from the spirit world, many cultures express a similar thing we should try to be at peace with them. In the case of La Llorona, an entity that is said to grab and drag her prey to the bottom of the nearest body of water, that might not be easy. The Tucson folklorist Rodarte joined me around a campfire to share some of the secrets he has learned. Um, this was a legend that I grew up with. It was prevalent throughout my childhood. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the region that I lived in, my family had witnessed a lot of spirits and ghost activity, and I heard a lot of stories about La Llorona, particularly right where my family lived. It's a very dark section in the northwest part of Albuquerque. Still is really dark to this day, so when I go back to visit for the holidays or in the summer, there are sections of town as I'm driving from home to home at night that I definitely flip that rearview mirror and, and not looking in the back seat. <laughs> Some people might want to know what's in the back seat. You would rather not, eh? No, I think uh, in this case I'm fine. I kind of keep my eyes on the road, uh, headlights on, and uh, hopefully I don't see anything in the middle of the road that's too perturbing. La Llorona is definitely one of our leading spirits here in the Southwest. We have talked about her on the show before, and one of the things that I have noticed is that everyone will tell you very firmly that La Llorona and the river in which her tragedy occurred is whatever river is closest to their house. Absolutely. I certainly encountered that over the years as I was writing this book and collecting stories. I had a number of people that were quite definitive in their opinion that she was from the town or village or city that they're from. In fact, on more than one occasion, I was sort of involved in arguments between people. My barber was giving me a haircut, and I allude to it in the book, where one of the clients started arguing that La Llorona was from her city, and he insisted she was from Tucson. And finally, in the end, being diplomatic, he kind of just shrugged and said, well, La Llorona's probably just everywhere. Have you tracked down the origin of the story in terms of year? The farthest back I've been able to track is to Aztec culture and uh, Moctezuma and his bride, Lama Liche. So that's going back thousands of years. And there are versions of it that permeate the Southwest, South America, and Mexico ever since then. But that's about, about the farthest back I've been able to trace any versions of the story. Why do you think that this tale has persisted? What is it about the La Llorona story that keeps it in circulation? There's something about this spirit seeking out children and men also who have been somehow unfaithful to their families or communities. You know, when this ghost gets her, her claws into things don't tend to end well. But there is still a sympathetic side to her story. I actually feel she's probably one of the most sympathetic and complex villains. At the time, it could have been 
a situation where in a patriarchal culture, women had a way to have some control over men and children and to keep them away from rivers and dangerous places, but also to help keep men in line. But then you had this woman that did something that today could be argued as a case of temporary madness. She did something in a fit of rage, almost beyond her control, immediately regretted what she did and tried to rectify it. And she is damned for all of eternity and is wailing inconsolably with regret and horror and anguish. She knows what she did. She knows it's horrible. She hates herself for it, but she just can't stop herself. So it really is a, a tragedy. So you mentioned that you've talked to people who have some stories and maybe have had some encounters. I've had a number of stories where she actually came after someone or someone drove physically through her in the road and kind of felt her kind of pass through the body. And then I've had where family members have seen a spirit call their family member next door because they saw the spirit heading into the woods to the adjacent home and the phone was ringing. My aunt answered the phone and her sister was looking out the window and said, I just saw you know, your deceased husband outside my window. So. It really is a range of stories that I've heard over the years from different family members. Is there any way to defend yourself? What's the strategy to protect yourself from La Llorona? <laughs> run. And <laughs> a run has paid off. Uh, stay away from the water. If, if you get away, whatever you were doing, you probably want to rectify that. Change your wicked ways. Um, for children, be in before dark, stay away from the water. You know, this really was a legend that was also probably told to keep people and children in particular away from pools, lakes, rivers, but especially now when we get flash floods. Um, generally, if there's a thunderstorm, go inside and behave. You can find more of Rodarte's research into ghost stories of the Southwest at lawyorona.com. For a dedicated fan of horror and suspense, Watching a classic film for the first time can be a special event. I remember many years ago starting one Hollywood classic that had a sterling reputation, only to be interrupted by a surprise knock at my front door. It turned out a friend had dropped by unannounced. Ironic, because the movie in question was The Uninvited. Film essayist Chris DeShiel offers a fond look back. This is the voice of the uninvited. It's coming from downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. Ghost stories aren't necessarily tales of horror. The idea of a dead person haunting the living has been an occasion for comedy, such as in the film Blythe Spirit, or romance like The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. So if, for Halloween, you prefer a clever mystery to something that tries scaring you to death, a good choice would be The Uninvited, from 1944, directed by Lewis Allen. A brother and sister, played by Ray Milland and Ruth Hussey, are vacationing in Cornwall when they stumble upon a beautiful old house. It's one of those houses you only see in the movies, near the edge of a high rocky cliff overlooking the sea. The sister falls in love with the place and they impulsively decide to buy it if they can. The owner, Donald Crisp, who lives nearby, is willing to part with it for a surprisingly low amount but his 20-year-old granddaughter Stella, played by Gail Russell, doesn't want them to move in because that's where her mother lived and then died tragically when Stella was only three by falling off the cliff to her death. By accident, suicide, or murder, we don't know. However, the sale of the house goes through anyway. Stop, Pamela. Don't go near that door. 
Rod, the Ray Milland character, is a composer and music critic and plans to use a large upstairs studio for his workroom. But the place has a cold, clammy feel to it, and if you light candles in the room, they have a way of flickering and blowing out. After the two move into their new home, they start hearing the voice of a woman sobbing late at night. And although they try to dismiss it as some kind of weird sound effect from underground caves, other strange things begin to happen. Rod befriends Stella, and he lets her visit the house against the orders of her grandfather. She faints with fright after seeing an apparition. The housekeeper starts seeing things too, and they all become convinced that the place is haunted. Stella, what is it? Are you ill, Stella? Quiet. Leave her alone. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Stop her, Scott. She's in a trance. I saw this happen once before at a seance. I thought it was a fake. But this isn't. I know. Maybe some of this would have been scary to a 1944 audience, but nowadays we're used to stronger stuff. Also, romance develops between Rod and Stella, as you might expect. But the real interest is in the mystery. How did Stella's mother really die? What was the role of the strange Spanish woman who had an affair with Stella's now-deceased father? There's also a sinister former confidant of the dead mother, played by Cornelia Skinner, who tries to put Stella away in her sanatorium. Please get out of this house now. Now lie back quietly. I'm not afraid of anything here. Then be afraid. Be afraid for heaven's sake. When you were a little child, the evils of this house reached out for you. Stella, go! Go! The picture has a nice spooky atmosphere, aided by Charles Lang's smooth black and white photography. The solution to the mystery, when it comes, is satisfying and ingenious. The Uninvited is not a masterpiece, but an example of the kind of enjoyable entertainment produced regularly by the studios in the classic era. This is Krista Scheel for Arizona Spotlight. Happy Halloween! Stay tuned for more on this special haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. <laughs>
but no longer. It is now one of Arizona's top Halloween attractions because of its history of untimely death and disaster. Tony Perkins talked to the co-author of a book that documents the dark side of Jerome and the fate of the spirits who may still call it home. Arizona is home to a lot of ghost towns. Isolated, dusty streets with long-forgotten shops and storefronts reserved to illustrate the history of the Old West. But Jerome, Arizona is a real town with real ghosts and a backstory that is classic Halloween. Patricia Jacobson researched the town's history for the book she co-wrote with Midge Stuber called Haunted Jerome. Jerome is the largest ghost town in Arizona. It, uh, it was founded in 1876, and there was one of the largest mines in Arizona in Jerome. If you travel north from Phoenix and take a side road on the way to Sedona, you'll see it built into the side of a mountain about an hour's drive from Prescott. Jacobson says the mountain's metal attracts spirits. And those spirits are made restless by tragic moments in Jerome's history. Mine explosions, floods, and landslides cost the lives of dozens of workers. When there was an accident in the mine, uh, it was very horrible. And many people died in instants. So I believe they're still walking around this town. Fires ravaged downtown buildings. Then the flu epidemic of 1918 hit the mining community hard. Uh, there were thousands that died, and we never did find uh, the records of their burials. Jacobson says many flu victims were miners who were attracted to the town by the promise of wealth and quick employment. They left their families behind and held few records about their past. Some speculate the town feared contamination from the fast-spreading virus, so they wasted little time taking the dead miners' bodies to the local smelter. So they threw them in the smelter, and the smelter produces a, a substance that we call slag. Now the slag was mixed in with the cement that paves the town. So a lot of people see ghosts just popping up on the sidewalk. Jacobson says many of the tales about haunted Jerome are backed up through interviews provided by firefighters, police officers, merchants, and other townspeople who have encountered ghosts in the town. She notes the creepy quality of the stories can be overwhelming pretty profound. My co-author Midge was a non-believer when we began this book, and now she believes in ghosts. I'm Tony Perkins. There is always more creepy Arizona history to be found, if you know where to look. That skill is a specialty of David Layton, who writes the Street Smarts column for the Arizona Daily Star. Next, Leighton tells us about a nearly forgotten piece of grisly lore that once again connects our material world 
with forces from beyond. Around the time of the U.S. Civil War, a miner named S.R. Domingo came to the fertile Santa Cruz Valley, supported by the ever-flowing river of the same name. He labored to construct his home and a foundry where he could melt his ore from the nearby hills into mineral wealth just north of the San Javier Mission. Domingo's mine flourished and he employed many miners. When they came to his house to be paid, he would say, wait here for me, I shall be back soon, and then disappear into the tall, thick grass and trees along the river. He would return with money in hand to pay them. Neighbors and workers believed he kept his wealth buried since no banks existed there at the time. One day, likely in the 1860s, residents of the village were shocked to see Domingo's workers carrying a box to the graveyard on the other side of the river. The box was nailed shut, with blood dripping out. It was rumored that workers had murdered Domingo for his money, but the workers said nothing about how Domingo died. With no law in Los Reales, Nobody was ever brought to justice, and it remains unknown what happened to Domingo's wealth. In 1874, President Ulysses S. Grant established the San Javier Indian Reservation. All non-American Indians were ordered to leave, and the mostly Mexican-American population moved to the east side of the river where the cemetery was. Almost 40 years later, the farming village was abandoned due to insufficient water. Around 1971, the old cemetery, with the exception of one part, was sold to a developer who built the Los Reales Heights No. 2 subdivision on the property. Some of the homes in this subdivision, that are still in existence today, were built on top of old gravesites. One of them might even be the gravesite of Mr. Domingo. Perhaps nothing is scarier than having to grow up and face the fact that despite what we want in our hearts, there are many expectations placed upon us that can be difficult, even unimaginable, to achieve. In the book, Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story, author Jacob Tobiah tells about an incident when they confronted this realization head-on. Earlier this October, Jacob Tobiah read to a live audience at the Murphy Wilmot Library in Tucson. My mom wasn't stupid. She could plainly see what was happening. She could see that the water around me was beginning to heat up, that it'd soon be boiling. She knew the world was becoming increasingly hostile to her effeminate, sensitive, creative son. And she, like every parent of a gender nonconforming child, faced a horrible choice. She had to make the choice between affirming me and keeping me safe from harm. While this choice was made iteratively, almost daily, my strongest memory of it was from Halloween 1997, when I was six years old. Like every Halloween, my mom took me to the Toys R Us, RIP Toys R Us, <laughs> near our house to pick out a costume. Spread around me were the countless identities, ideas, possibilities of self to experiment with for one night only. I could be a princess surveying my realm, a firefighter facing down an inferno, a scientist exploring outer space, or I could be something stupid, like a pumpkin, or a ladybug, or whatever. I mean, no offense, but why do children go as pumpkins for Halloween? 
It's such a Hufflepuff choice, not to mention a pretty arbitrary vegetable. You get one night to be as extravagant as you'd like, as daring as you want, and something compels certain children to say, I want to be a gourd. That's just who I am. <laughs> it's not that children shouldn't dress up as vegetables. I'm a vegetarian and I love vegetables, so obviously I think that children dressed as vegetables are adorable. It's just that I believe children should be able to dress up as vegetables any day they want to. They shouldn't have to waste their precious once a year Halloween costume on it. Parents should just be able to say, okay, it's Tuesday, you know what that means, Stephanie. Time to dress up like your favorite item from the produce aisle. <laughs> Stephanie shouldn't have to wait until Halloween for that. Stephanie should get to dress up like a tomato any day she damn well pleases. As I stood there facing the great wall of identities offered by Toys R Us, one costume stuck out to me above all others. I wanted to be Pocahontas more than anything in the world. It was 1997. I was six years old and hadn't quite developed my political consciousness about cultural appropriation or the colonization of the Americas and subsequent genocide of Native American people at the hands of white settlers yet. I also didn't know multiplication, so I had some stuff to work on. What I did know was that Pocahontas was by far the most badass Disney princess. So in that toy store aisle, I took a deep breath and conjured up all the courage I could muster. The inevitable question was posed by my mom. So, who do you want to be for Halloween this year? I paused, turned to her, and managed to squeak out, Pocahontas, maybe? My mom paused and let out a deep sigh as her gears turned. How could she explain to me what I needed to know? How could she tell me what I needed to hear? If we'd grown up in a different world, in a more perfect universe, in an alternate, less racist, less misogynistic reality, perhaps that would have been the moment she would pause collect her thoughts, and cautiously say what needed to be said. I know you are more feminine than the other boys. I know you love dresses and flowers and playing with your grandmother's jewelry, and I love that about you. There is absolutely nothing wrong with who you are, and I will support you no matter what. But I also want to help you understand the world you're growing up in. You are growing up in a world where many people, your brother, your father, your classmates, your peers, random strangers on the street, you name it, are going to be hostile toward you because of your femininity. People are going to spend most of your life making you feel less than. Knowing that, I wanna help you make an informed decision. Would you rather go as a more socially acceptable costume, like a pumpkin or some equally stupid vegetable? <laughs> Thereby avoiding the torment of your peers? Or, are you ready to put on a dress and brace, bravely face the world? Whatever you choose, I will support you and love you and hug you when it feels like too much, okay? But in our universe, instead of saying all that, she simply turned to me with a quiet look of concern and sheepishly asked, what about going as a boy character from the movie? If we lived in a better world, I would have turned to her and replied, Really, Jane? Are you serious right now? You want me to go as John Smith, the <laughs> colonizer? I mean, look, Jane, I know the Disney version of the movie makes this ethical position sort of debatable or whatever, but we all know that is some propaganda <laughs> Are you seriously suggesting I walk around the neighborhood dressed as a genocide-perpetrating white dude? <laughs> no! We didn't live in that world. 
So, defeated, I turned to her and simply said, okay, but I want to go as another boy from the movie, not John Smith. Looking back on that Halloween, I missed the mark. If I'd known then what I know now, the solution would have been obvious. I should have just gone as Grandmother Willow. She doesn't have a gender. She's a tree. <laughs> and we'll end there. Thank you for listening to the 12th Annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. On behalf of production engineer Jim Blackwood, plus Andrew Brown, Tony Perkins, Rodarte, David Layton, Chris DeShiel, Jacob Tobaya, our friends at the Pima County Public Library, and guest musician Matea, plus the spirit of La Llorona and all things that go bump in the Tucson night. This is Mark McLemore, wishing everyone a very safe and extremely scary Halloween. Go do something fun. <laughs> Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.